Bibles with you, turn to Luke chapter 10. Thank you. Luke chapter 10. Today we shall continue with our, our look at the conscience of man. read from verse 25 this morning. Luke chapter 10 verse 25 to 29. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempting him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbour as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbour? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness. To us, we thank you for your providence, your guidance, your grace, and your mercy. Lord, we pray your presence this morning would uh, lead us into your truth, would be our guide and our teacher, that our hearts would be open to your truth, and that our minds be willing, Lord, to absorb those things which you have for us this morning. Lord, I pray that as we, as we learn more and more from your word, that our lives would be transformed, our minds would be changed to the mind of Christ. And I pray that uh, we would be a be better witnesses, be bolder in our testimony, in our witness of our Lord and our Saviour Jesus Christ who gave himself willingly on the cross for our sake that we might have eternal life. We thank you, Heavenly Father, this morning for this time. I pray that you bless me now as I attempt to share this word with my brothers and sisters here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, ever seen, I remember when I was growing up, Ever seen those cartoons? And I'm not sure which one it was, but you had a, car, a specific, you had a few of them where you had the angel and the devil on one side of their shoulders, and the, the, the little devil would be telling them one thing in one ear, and then the angel would be saying, No, no, don't do it, it's wrong. And then the devil would sort of beat up the little angel, and then the person would go and do the, the exact wrong thing. Do you know which one which I'm talking about, don't you? I don't. I can't remember if it was Bugs Bunny or or what one of those sorts of um, of cartoons. But there's a there's a battle that goes on in a person's mind, isn't there? There's a battle that 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 happens to the saved and the unsaved. Even even the unsaved, okay, struggle with these things, with these thoughts that come up. And in a sense, it's a bit like the angel is their conscience telling them, don't do it, don't do it. But then the flesh is just too strong and actually overcomes what the conscience is telling them. Last, uh, or two weeks ago, we began a look at the conscience of man. We looked at what it is, how it works, and where it came from. We looked at the way that man spends most of his life trying to justify himself to his conscience, either to appease it or to try and dull it by suggesting excuses to it. In order to feed his flesh, to justify ungodly living, man spends his time arguing and ultimately searing his own conscience. 
And this is where this passage that we started off with this morning uh, comes into play. The lawyer stood up and asked a question of the Lord and says, how do I inherit eternal life? And the Lord simply says, well, how do you read the law? And the law says, or the lawyer responded by saying, you're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and your neighbour as yourself. And Jesus says, spot on. You're right. Because if you can do that, you have fulfilled the entire law. But then the, um, the lawyer, as it was, the Bible says, willing to justify himself. What was he justifying? What was he justifying? Answers Jesus with another question. He says, who is my neighbour? Well, the lawyer knew what the answer to that question was. Deep down, his conscience would have been telling him already, the answer is all men that you come in contact with. But he had a specific dislike for certain people. He would have had a specific disdain for a certain group of people called Samaritans or anyone outside of the Jewish family. And Jesus explained to him with the, with the parable or with the description that he gives later that his neighbour really included all people, even outside of Israelites, including the people he probably most likely despised, which were a mixed breed called Samaritans, who had corrupted the official or the, or the right worship of God. It's easy to imagine people not liking people like that, isn't it? Because the, the Jews are very proud of their history, of their lineage. And then you have a group of people here who are half-breeds, as it were, who had corrupted the worship of God from being in the temple to being on, on a mountain. And many Jews regarded them as dogs. When Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan... He was turning the whole argument back on his, on his head. He was saying that the good Samaritan did to the man, did good to the man who had been robbed. And the man or the lawyer who was trying to argue or justify himself why he shouldn't really treat everyone like a neighbour was silenced. You see, the man was able to, within himself, overcome his own conscience. He could argue and justify himself to his, to his conscience, but when it came time to dealing with the word of God, the living word of God, his mouth was stopped. He had both the word of God and his conscience now to deal with, and he couldn't do it. So he left quietly. And the word of God is an interesting thing. We're going to look a little bit more at this today, and, and probably in the in next, next few weeks how the Word of God is able to instruct the conscience of man. The Word of God is able to instruct the conscience. Now, in this particular case, we're speaking of the, the, the conscience telling someone this is the right thing to do. The right thing for that lawyer to do was to treat every man as his neighbour. In other words, love them. To love every man. But we saw last week that the conscience also has a convicting role. Turn to John chapter 8, verse 9. 
When a group of men were about to stone a woman who had been caught in adultery, we see the Lord challenging them and saying, well, which of you first is without sin? You cast the first stone. The Bible says in verse 9, John chapter 8, verse 9, And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, being at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Were these men saved? Had they received the Holy Spirit? The answer is no. They hadn't received the Holy Spirit. These men were operating directly with their conscience in order to deal with life's matters. The Bible teaches us very clearly that every man has a conscience. Now, there are varying forms of conscience, but I believe that every man has a conscience to start off with. Turn to Romans chapter 2, verse 15. Romans chapter 2, verse 15. This is referring to people who aren't Israelites, people without the written law that was, that was given to Moses on the mountain. And Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts demean while excuse, accusing or else excusing one another. The conscience bears witness against a person's actions and will either elicit thoughts of accusation or justification. What you do, your conscience will say either good or bad. And this, is our, this brings us back to our definition of conscience. And the, the dictionary definition of it is the sense of consciousness, okay, awareness of the moral goodness or blameworthiness of one's own conduct, intentions or, or character, together with a feeling of obligation to do right or to be good. As one little boy, uh, boy put it, when his mother asked him, what's the difference between being conscious and conscience? Okay, there's a difference between those two words. And the little boy says, well, that's easy. One means um, being aware of something. So if I'm conscious about the, you, your presence here, I'm aware of your presence. He said, but conscience is wishing you weren't aware of something. It's a good answer, isn't it? Wishing you weren't aware of something. Conscience, then, is the faculty whereby we are at, one, at once conscious or aware of our own thoughts, words or actions... And being aware of their being either good or bad and consequently deserving either praise or disapproval. We saw in scripture that the conscience can be manipulated by man's will. It wasn't something that was fixed in stone like the law. It was something that could be manipulated, changed. And the Bible teaches us that it can be defiled, it can be evil... And it can be seared. Let's look at these the three scripture verses that speak of that. Um, Titus chapter 1 verse 15. Titus 
Titus chapter 1 verse 15 says this, Unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. The word defiled here means corrupted or polluted. Our conscience is a, is a bit like a, a window, in a sense. When it's clean, light can enter in. When it's dirty, no light enters in, and it's a very dark place. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. Our conscience can be weakened, dulled and dimmed by the sin that we tolerate in our lives. When we sin, refusing to acknowledge it as such, it soils and defiles the conscience. In other words, the conscience can't deal with it anymore. And people spend their lives, like I said, justifying their sin to themselves because their conscience pricks them. But the problem is, the next time they go to do that sin, the conscience then becomes useless. It can't raise its voice anymore because in the person's mind, the justification for doing that is already there. I had an interesting conversation with someone this week about gossip. <clears throat> and I, I asked a simple question. Well, this person was gossiping, let's say, out to people. And from the person who was at the receiving end of the gossip, who was the person who was the, uh, the, the object of the gossip, what was being spread around wasn't true. The person who was doing the gossiping thought it was true. Now question. The person who's doing the gossiping believes it's true. Does it make it gossip? Yes, it does. It's gossip regardless of whether it's true or whether it's false. It's still gossip. <clears throat> and one person sought to justify this specific uh, action by saying, but he really believes it. Of course he really believes it. There's a, lot of people that, there's a lot of things that people really believe, aren't there? But that aren't necessarily true. Just because someone believes something doesn't justify that action. But this person believed that because that person was convinced that it was true, that spreading that truth around, in inverted commas, was okay. That's justification. That's justifying to one's own conscience something that you know by definition is wrong. But once that person begins to do that and justifies to themselves, but it's okay, I'm telling the truth anyway, even though they've never checked it with that person they're accusing. It becomes difficult then for the conscience to ever override anything they do along those lines in the, in the future. They've justified in their own mind something that is very plainly a sin. So the conscience can be defiled. God's word speaks of also an evil conscience. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22.
Hebrews 10 verse 22. It says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We'll look at this verse in a bit more depth later on in the, uh, in the sermon. But for now, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. An evil conscience is one that is so defiled, so corrupt, it turns values upside down confusing and blurring the distinction between right and wrong, moral and immoral. This is reflected in Isaiah chapter, uh, chapter 5 verse 20, when he says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. People have a tendency in our society to be able to, 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 be able to flip their consciences the exact opposite way. I'll give you an example. Abortion. Someone can justify to themselves the killing of an unborn child and then make, them, make themselves feel so justified when they save a tree. That's flipping your conscience upside down. That's putting... That's making something of much greater worth the value of a human life under the value of a tree. That's flipping your conscience. That's called an evil conscience. That's what people, that's what the Bible says, putting good for evil and evil for good. Putting bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And finally, the Bible says that there is something called a seared conscience. Mark Twain said, an uneasy conscience is a hair in the mouth. But you know something? A person is in real trouble when personal sin doesn't bother them anymore. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 2 says, Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. You burn something with a hot iron, you, you, you seal it. Those of you who, um, all those men out there who love to... Um, to cook barbecued steak. Okay? What's the trick to cooking a good steak on the barbecue? How hot, how hot do you have the actual... Uh, you have it really hot. And why do you have it really hot? Well, you have it really hot because when you throw the meat on there, it sears. It seals the meat, which means nothing goes in and nothing can come out. And then you flip it over, which means all the juices stay inside. With a seared conscience, it's burning it to the point where nothing goes in and nothing comes out. It becomes useless. Not affected by anything from the outside. A seared conscience is one that's cut off, silenced and beyond feeling. Okay, now we're going to look at, re-look at basically where did this thing come from? Where did our conscience come from? As I said to you, most theologians say that the conscience is a gift from God. And I ask the question, is it a gift from God? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Genesis 2, verse 25. God created Adam and Eve in innocence. 
God had given them one command to keep, and that was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And verse 25 says something very simple. It says that they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. They were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now turn to chapter 3 verse 4. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. So the, the, the serpent immediately counteracts God's command. Verse 5, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now the question is, was he telling the truth, or was he lying? Well, as Satan always plays, and, all, and, and is very cunning at the way he does it, there's part truth and part lie to this thing. Because they would die. But there was an element of truth in it. Their eyes would be opened. Their eyes would be opened to something they didn't know before. And go to verse 7. And we'll see the result when they ate the fruit. Genesis 3 verse 7 says, And the eyes of them both were opened. Hang on a sec. Did they have their, were they walking around with their eyes closed before? No. They knew what God let them know. They knew what God wanted them to know. The Bible says that the very next thing, and the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Let's, let's make a few observations here. Adam and Eve, in a moment, in a moment, became knowledgeable about good and evil. Not just evil, but good. Adam and Eve, all at once, had what we would describe and, and is described exactly by a definition of a conscience. And now they had to deal with that conscience because the conscience that was now implanted in them was convicting them already. And they'd never had that experience before. The conscience was condemning them. They had broken God's law and the conscience on top of that was saying, you're both naked. How do they deal with that? How do they deal with feelings of conviction and shame? Well, that's very easy. You run away and hide. That's the first one. You run away and hide. And the next thing you do is you cover yourself up. Or you cover things over. And they tried to cover their nakedness using the flimsiest uh, thing they could find around, which was fig leaves. Now, does it sound familiar, this sort of, this sort of thing? R hiding from God and then trying to cover things up. That's exactly what they tried to do. They didn't know how to deal with these feelings of guilt and shame. They'd never had, they'd never felt guilt and shame before. Oh, we're used to it though. We're used to guilt and shame. We've become experts at hiding and covering things up. But this was their first time. They'd never felt anything but peace and love from the Lord. And now they were experiencing feelings they'd never had before. But it's very familiar to us. 
You see, when a person sins, the easiest thing to do is to run away and hide and then cover things up. Anyone, anyone ever put on clothes made of fig leaves? Uh, anyone, anyone have a fig, uh, fig tree at home? Okay. We used to have fig trees at home. We used to have three huge fig trees at home. And we used to play into those fig trees and that. I'll tell you something. If you rub, if you ever rub fig leaves on your hands, on your skin, you know what the feeling is? You get itchy. That milk from those, from those leaves is very, very itchy and very uncomfortable. And if you had to make clothes for yourself with fig leaves, you know, you'd be itchy all day long. And this is exactly the same way that man has, deals with sin in his life and then tries to cover things up. You become more and more uncomfortable. Notice something else. Look at verse 20 in chapter 3. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Now, there's two very interesting points there. God, uh, Adam names Eve after, directly after they eat this fruit. Notice that? Not before. He names Eve the mother of all living. Had they had any children at this stage? The answer is no. How did he know? Adam named his wife Eve directly after they ate the fruit. And he said, you're going to be the mother of all living. It's very probable they learned about sexual attraction and sexual relations after they ate the fruit. They became sexually attracted to each other. And they understood what the whole thing was about. You see, Adam and Eve, before they ate the fruit, were like children, blissfully unaware. They were naked. I don't think there was any sexual attraction to them, between them, at that stage. I think the sexual attraction and the distortion that comes with those things from a fallen nature came directly after as well. I believe the knowledge of their nakedness came only after they ate the fruit and they tried to cover their bodies. But the interesting thing is that the Lord said to them, no, 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 don't worry about that, that's okay. How does the Lord deal with the, the, their feelings of nakedness? I mean, they were naked before. Did the Lord clothe them? The answer is no. Does the Lord now try to talk them out of this, this conviction of nakedness? The answer is no. The Lord makes clothes for them. Which is an interesting thing in itself. The Lord doesn't dismiss their new knowledge. He doesn't contradict it. He simply makes clothes for them. By killing an animal. In other words, even though they were naked previously, they weren't sinning. There was no sin involved there. But when they were aware of their nakedness, it did become a sin to them. Their new knowledge condemned them. They had lost their innocence. 
Now look at verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Let's stop there. Had Satan lied? Would their eyes be opened and they'd be like God, knowing good and evil? No, that wasn't a lie. That was the truth. Because the Lord confirms it again. He says, The man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, we're going to have to do something about it. God confirms that they now know good and evil. They now have what we call a conscience. And as a result of that conscience and their inability to be able to deal with that conscience, God says, we have to stop them now from living forever. And he restricts the access to the tree of life to save them in a sense, to allow them to die. The consequence of their sin and the addition of a conscience into them was now irreversible. God had to deal with this in a different way. He couldn't just take the conscience out of them. They were aware of it now. But God had to stop them, first of all, from being able to live forever. Otherwise, they would have seared their conscience after a time and lived in sin in a fallen state, totally depraved for the rest of eternity. God couldn't allow that. So God does something interesting. He stops, he restricts their access to the tree of life. Look at verse 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims. And a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. You know, I used to believe there was one cherubim standing with a flaming sword there at the, at the garden. Until I read cherubims. More than one. You know, this is the first time in scripture the word cherubims is used. Alright? The first time. And these cherubims were placed at the east of the garden to stop or to guard the way to the tree of life. Man wasn't allowed there anymore. Cherubims, angels with wings. And just on a side note, of the different types of angelic beings in heaven, and I've got a course coming up which is going to be all about angels uh, this week, um, what's the standout role of a cherubim? Cherubim and seraphim and beasts in the in heaven. Cherubim main role was guardians. They were guards. They guarded the way to the tree of life that man may not enter. Now, question for you: When is the next time you hear of the word cherubims in Scripture? Have a guess. Good point. Turn to Exodus chapter 25 verse 18. 
Now I want you to keep this, this in mind. The cherubim and the, at the garden were guards to stop entry of the tree of life. And they were basically witnesses there as well. That man couldn't enter anymore. Cherubims are next mentioned when something is being made. Exodus 25 verse 18 says, And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold. Of beaten work shalt thou make them, and the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub at the one end, and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat shall you make the cherubims of the two ends thereof. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look one to another, toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. Stop there. When Moses received the Ten Commandments on the mountain, the Lord gave him those Ten Commandments written in stone. Moses was then instructed to put them in a box, which we call an ark. The box was called the Ark of the Covenant, and they've made a few good movies about it. In that ark were placed three things. The Ten Commandments, a bowl of manna, and an Aaron's staff, which budded. Now I want you to picture this. There's a box... And inside that box are Ten Commandments, manna, and a, a staff, a rod. A lid is then made for that box, which goes neatly on top of it. And then there are, on that lid, there are two angels, which are looking on each side, looking towards each other, and down into that box. What were they looking at? What were the angels looking at? Why did God ask them to be built in that specific way? What, what does the law, the manner and the staff mean? Well, basically, these two cherubims were witnesses of man's breaking God's law, rejecting his provision and rejecting his all and rebelling against his authority. God provided manna for them in the, in the wilderness, did he not? Everything they needed was in that manna. What did they do? They winged and complained. They rejected his provision. God provided them with a law. Did they keep the law? The answer is no. They broke the law. And finally, God said... This staff represents my authority over you. They rejected that authority too. So these two cherubims are sitting at each, each side of this, uh, of this uh, ark, on the top of it. And they're looking down into this thing. And it means one thing, that man has sinned and is worthy of judgment. Man was guilty. The ark... And the, the Israelites, very fond of the ark, they, they carried it everywhere they went, into battle and everywhere. But you know something? 
It was a continual testimony or testament of their unfaithfulness. They carried around this thing everywhere they went. And it was a continuing reminder of their unfaithfulness. Not of their power, not of their faithfulness, but their unfaithfulness. The fact that they were lawbreakers, the fact that they were rebels, the fact that they had rejected God's provision. In a sense, it was a bit like carrying around a guilty conscience everywhere you go. Testifying against you. Always. Even in, as they entered the promised land. That, that box was a testament to themselves and to heaven, represented by those two angels of their sin. When the tabernacle was, was made, and later the temple, it was placed, that box with the angels was placed in the most holy place in that temple. In a part that was called the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go once a year, and he never looked in that box. He wasn't allowed. There was only one thing he could do. His job was to sprinkle the mercy seat, that lid, with the blood of a lamb. He would sprinkle blood on that seat. And the symbolism of that was that as the angels looked down at that that testament of Israel's sin and man's sin against God, the blood would cover the vision of those sins. And the sin of Israel would be atoned for once a year. God was creating a picture of something spiritual in the material world. The picture that God was creating would show them how God was going to deal with their sin and their guilty conscience, which condemns every man and drives them away from God. What that ark pictures very nicely is the conscience of man. I'll tell you why. Remember I told you that man is created in three parts. He's made of a a spirit, a soul, and a body. Well, the body we know, we see, we feel, we touch. The soul is the part of us that that has our will, our emotions. It's a part of us where, where the battle takes place. And then there's a spiritual side, which is, the Bible says, the side that gave us life in the first place. When man sinned, the Bible says that our, our spirit died. Where was the Holy Spirit? Was it living in the spirit of man after he fell? The answer is no. It was supplanted by the conscience. I think that, I think that Adam and Eve had a wonderful communication going with God. I think the Spirit of God lived within them just like the Christians today. I think the Spirit of God was living in them and teaching them directly what he would have them to know. But then when they decided to find out all that knowledge themselves through a a tree of knowledge of good and evil, the Spirit no longer lived there. He was supplanted by this knowledge that was artificial. The conscience supplanted the presence of the Holy Spirit residing in the spirit of man. It took his place. And the temple of God very clearly pictures not only the trinity of God, because the temple is made up of three parts. Isn't it amazing? God is three in one, correct? Man is 
three, one. The temple is three parts with one temple. Is it a coincidence? I don't think so. I think God's very clear about the way he pictures things. The temple pictures also the three parts of man. The outer court, the outer court is where people would come in and out, the priests would do their service, all types of things happening out there closely corresponds to our body. Then you have an inner court or you have a holy place where the priests would serve. Only the priests were allowed in there. Corresponds very nicely to our soul. Then you have a holy of holies where only the priest could enter once a year where that box lived. The box that testified against the sin of Israel. And we have a thing called the spirit which died when we fell in the garden. Now the conscience is that box which testifies against us every day. Or testifies against, I should rephrase that, against the unsaved every day. Are you still with me? Okay. The tabernacle that God told Moses to build was a picture of what man had within himself. A conscience which would ultimately condemn him to hell, pictured by the ark and its contents. Cherubim, witnessing the sin and rebellion and restricting access to the tree of life. Despite the sacrifices of bulls and rams and goats, man was still cut off from eternal life and God's throne. Those cherubim were witnesses that despite the blood of lambs, goats and bulls, the person would eventually die because they were always guilty before God. This is the work of the law in teaching people that they are sinners before God and nothing else. And the same thing with your conscience. Your conscience can only simply tell you you're guilty. The law of God was in writing condemning man much the same way our conscience condemns us. Until, go to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 3. Guess where the last place the word cherubims is used in the Bible? It's Hebrews chapter 9 verse 3. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 3. Look at what our Lord did. And after the second veil, now that is the veil that goes into the holiest of holies. Okay, that's where, the, that's where the ark is kept. And after the second veil, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, that's that middle, that middle court, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. 
Alright, so let's stop there. So the picture is of the ministry of the priests in the temple within its three areas, separated by two veils. You've got your outer court. There's no veil into the outer court, but there's, a, there's an outer court. There's a veil that separates entry into the, mid, the middle one where the priests would serve daily. And then you had another veil which went into the holiest of holies where the, only the high priest could go in once a year to sprinkle that blood on that mercy seat for the sins of the people. And the cherubims were witnesses of that ceremony. Now look at verse 11. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, and that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, look at this, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Purge your conscience to serve the living God? Yeah. Purging your conscience. Christ became our high priest who didn't need to offer a sacrifice for himself first like the high priest, but by whose blood we obtain eternal redemption, not temporary redemption. Not just after the priest does it are we then clean, Christ does it for us eternally, never to be done again. And what did that do? It purged my conscience from dead works. It cleaned my conscience. It took away the defilement of my conscience. So I don't have to run away from him anymore. I don't have to run. I don't have to hide. I don't have to cover things up anymore. He did it all for me with one go. And he has now restored me to that fellowship. Does that excite you at all? That's an exciting thing in itself. What God did for us, and if we look at our consciences, our consciences would, if we, if we had our consciences, the Bible says that, you know, when... Uh, any, any sort of uh, description the Bible gives of man being judged in the end, how much argument do men people give do men give God in the Bible concerning, concerning the final judgment? you know how much argument they're going to give? None. Every mouth will be stopped. Why is that? Because their own conscience will be condemning them at the same time God is handing down his judgment. They cannot argue against anything that God says because within themselves... They have a condemning voice which is condemning them also to hell. The Bible says that when a person is born again, you know that conscience that was, that was alone and working by itself and, and, and having all types of problems in our spirit, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit takes up residence back there again. It comes back. And all of a sudden things change completely for a person. Go to chapter 10, verse 16 now, in Hebrews. And this is really the culmination of, this, uh, of what God would have for us. 
Look at verse 16. Hebrews 10 verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And look at this. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. When Christ's blood was sprinkled on me, blood was sprinkled on my conscience. God cleansed my conscience. That's why a Christian can look at God directly and, and approach his throne without condemnation. There need not be any condemnation from our consciences anymore because of what Jesus has done for us. What the conscience couldn't do, the spirit could. The conscience could never be appeased. Adam and Eve didn't know what to do with a guilty conscience. All they could do was run and hide and cover themselves up. You know, there's something, what the Lord's done for us is beyond what we can even imagine. Instead of, and this is the beautiful part of it. Look at what God says, I will put my laws in their hearts. You know, instead, of, instead of now, instead of man obtaining laws from a forbidden, by forbidden means, God is saying, I'm going to put my laws in their hearts. I'm going to write them in their minds. They're not, no, longer, no longer going to be written from, from, a, from a tree that I forbade them a long time ago. By a fruit that was corrupted. God himself wants to write his laws in our hearts. You know how? Through the work of his Holy Spirit. It's now the Spirit's job to write those laws in our hearts. When a person is born again by the blood of Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in again, takes up residence, and our dead spirit comes to life. Only because God is living there now. And even though the conscience is still there, we still have a conscience, the Holy Spirit is there teaching the conscience, reprogramming it as it was, to get back into line to where it's supposed to be. This is what it means to grow as a Christian. You see, before I became born again, my conscience was all over the place. It was, I had changed it to suit myself. I had defiled it, I had manipulated it, I had justified sin to it. But when the Holy Spirit takes up residence, the Spirit, you can't argue with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit knows. It can't be, the Spirit can't be defiled. The Spirit can't be uh, seared. The Spirit is always there, speaking the truth. That's why Scripture says, Know you not that you're a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. The Spirit of God dwells in each and every one of us and us collectively as well. This is why verse four in, uh, chapter 4 in Ephesians says, But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. 
that you're putting off concerning the former conversation, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. I asked, uh, I asked someone a question once, I think it was, it was Kelly, and I said, where's the real you? Is the real you the old you? You know the one that you struggle with? The flesh? Or is the real you the new you? And the answer is the real you is the new you, not the old you. The old you is d- dead and dying and is going to be out the door soon. The new you, the new nature that God has put within us is the real us. And God promises that he will forget all of our sins because the blood of Christ continually cleanses us and covers us. God sees the Christian as clean and pure. It's not because of our perfect obedience that we are this way before God, but because of the perfect obedience and work of Jesus in buying us and getting us eternal redemption. The sacrifice made by Christ gives us the right and confidence to approach God's throne with faith in Jesus Christ because our conscience has been cleansed. That's why it says, having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. This is in stark contrast to the standalone work of the conscience which causes men to hide from the Lord. This is why the Bible says, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. This is why scripture says, but the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake of which burneth with fire and brimstone which is the second death. Why fearful? Why would God include fearful in that? People whose consciences haven't been purged are fearful of God. They run away from God. That's the, that's the standard nature of man. Look at one more scripture passage. We're going to contrast now quickly. The work of the spirit to that of the conscience. John chapter 16 verse 7. While the work of the conscience in man involves a conviction of sin, the reinforcement of righteousness and of judgment, the Holy Spirit, it seems, has a very similar role. Look at verse, uh, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 7 of chapter 16 of John. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the Prince of the world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. On a superficial reading of verse 8, it would seem that the work of the Spirit and the conscience are almost exactly the same. No difference. The Spirit reproves the world of sin, 
of righteousness and of judgment. Hang on a sec. That's what the spirit, that, that's what the conscience was doing already. But hang on a sec. There's a bit of an explanation after as well. The spirit does that always in reference to Jesus Christ. Not just within ourselves. Look at this. He will reprove the world of sin because why? Because they believe not me. Jesus now is the focus of the Holy Spirit. He will reprove the world of righteousness. Why? Because Jesus has ascended into heaven because he was perfectly righteous. And he will reprove the world of judgment. Satan has lost. The corruption that he planted in the Garden of Eden has been judged by what? By the work of Jesus Christ. Satan's folly and desire to destroy mankind through the tree of knowledge of good and evil has been overturned. Man has been redeemed and he has been condemned. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. The conscience was a fixed thing, not alive. It wasn't living. So it was easy for our strong wills and our flesh to corrupt it. It's a bit like a, you know, a, a computer program that gets a virus. Keep on adding more and more viruses to this program and it doesn't work properly anymore. That's exactly what we did to our consciences. But we can't do that to the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is living. It can't be corrupted. And it teaches us God's truth. Whereas the conscience can't teach us specifically God's truth. The conscience was fixed. The Spirit of God continually leads us into truth through the Word of God. And the Word of God can reprogram our conscience to match His standard. It can reprogram our conscience from distortions that we've corrupted it with throughout our lives. And it can give us God's truth and teach us God's truth. That's why we can read God's Word and we can learn something new from it all the time. It's God's Spirit that's able to teach us God's Word, which then reprograms our mind. This is why Paul says, I say the truth in Christ. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Paul, Paul's conscience was programmed so well that he believed it matched up perfectly with what the Holy Ghost was teaching. His conscience was clear. And Paul says this a number of times through Scripture. His conscience was clear. Why? Because whatever the Spirit told him, the Spirit would teach his conscience the truth. And, his conscience, and he would obey. So the Holy Ghost's work is different from the conscience in that the Holy Spirit always points to Christ and his righteousness. I love, the, I love the message that, uh, that Alan gave last week. It's the finished work of Christ. It's the crucified Christ that we should always point to. That's the focus here. And that's the focus of the Holy Spirit. It always points to His work. His triumph over sin and death. His righteousness. Not ours. The conscience can't do that. The conscience was a weak form of moral code that wasn't alive. And it was ultimately useless to give man the power to overcome sin. The Spirit of God can. 
Because the Spirit of God is living, it gives us not only the knowledge that we need, but the power that we need to overcome sin. That's the difference. The conscience can in the end only really condemn man, while the Spirit of God can truly give him comfort. That's why he's a comforter. Because Christ has done it all for us. And all we have to do now is to enjoy the benefits of his work. That's why while everything is in turmoil around you, while the whole world seems to be going crazy, we can be at peace. We can be at peace because we have peace with God. Our conscience has been cleansed. Do you have this peace today? Do you have peace in your conscience today? If you don't, then it's an indication that you're not only doing the wrong thing, but you're not listening to the leading of the Spirit. The Spirit will never get you to do something that's contrary to your conscience. Next time, we'll talk about how that works in real life. But let me ask you this morning a few questions. Have you had your conscience cleansed and made pure? by the blood of Jesus this morning? Does the peace of God reign in your heart this morning? Are you aware of what Christ has done for you really? Are you aware, are you aware of what he's done? Are you, are you aware of the, what, what his blood does for you as a sinner? That blood that, can, that he shed can cleanse a man from every sin and stain and calm a screaming conscience. All it takes is for you to repent of your sin and put your faith in him, in his work. Your conscience can't condemn you anymore if your faith is in Christ. This morning, if your conscience... Is bearing witness against you. Deal with it. Don't let it go anymore. Deal with it this morning. Don't leave these doors without confessing sin before God. The Spirit is always there within us. It's living in us, teaching us, guiding us. The Spirit can't be corrupted, but the Spirit can be ignored. It can be grieved. Where are we at the moment? If your conscience is condemning you today about something, then you are already grieving the Spirit. Next time we'll look at the Holy Spirit's role with the conscience and how a weak conscience can be strengthened by the Spirit and how the Scripture tells us how to walk in the Spirit. God bless you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us this morning, Lord. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and we thank you that even though man sinned in the garden, Lord, that we have a saviour who has saved us. We thank you for the work of our Lord and our saviour, Jesus Christ, who went into the Holy of Holies with his own blood. The blood that was sprinkled on our hearts to cleanse us from all sin to purge our evil consciences. 
that you may look at us now, Heavenly Father, and see your children clean and white. We thank you for the robes of righteousness which cover us with your perfect goodness. Heavenly Father, we would have been naked and full of shame if if he had not done that. We thank you for the clothing you give us. We thank you for the work that's been done for us. We thank you for taking our place on the cross. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for the bright future you've given us. All through your only begotten Son, who we lift up this morning, and in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.